Coming today on Negotiate Your Best Life with Rebecca Zung. The key to everything is really how you see life. And and if you understand life at a deeper, more connective level than anyone else, uh, not, not manipulatively, but you have what you want, which is advantage. You have, you have uh, appreciation advantage, empathy advantage, uh, critical thinking advantage. So the big questions are these. How can we navigate and negotiate every situation in our lives, in our career, in our businesses, in our relationships, and even with ourselves for our own self-worth? In other words, what if you could win every time and have no losers? Let's face it, we're not negotiating just to buy a car or for a pay raise. We are negotiating for living in every aspect of our lives. How can we do that powerfully, successfully, and victoriously? Those are the questions, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Rebecca Song, and welcome to the time where you negotiate your best life. Welcome to another episode of Negotiate Your Best Life. I'm Rebecca Song, and I'm super excited to welcome Jay Abraham today. He is really a legend, an entrepreneurial marketing legend who has been a mentor to household names such as Tony Robbins, Stephen Covey, Brian Tracy. Sometimes he's been known as the $9 billion man because he has generated revenues such as $9 billion for people. But I really want to dive in today because he has he has this philosophy around getting everything you can out of all you've got. And we are going to be digging into that and his belief system and how you guys can, you know, get behind his brain and how we all can learn how we can get all we can out of what we've got as well. So thank you, Jay. It is such an honor to meet you and have you here. A privilege and pleasure. Always tickled to contribute. So uh, take off the gloves and have at me. I'm ready. Thank you. So first of all, I want to know, you know, what, where you came from, because you've had you know, legendary success. I, I mean, the the best in the business come to sit at your feet, learn from you. You have generated billions and billions of dollars for people. So where did you come from? Where did this start for you? <laughs> it started in a very, uh, I'm an anomaly. And uh, so, so, so you know it. I got started at age 18, got married at 18, had two kids at 20, had no education, had the needs of somebody about 40 and the world didn't care. And the only people that gave me, uh, let's call it opportunity, were crazy, but very impressive entrepreneurs who would never give me a salary, but they say, hey, you can have a piece of uh, whatever you create. So you eat what you kill. And when you only eat when you earn, you figure out what works, what doesn't, what works best. But because I wasn't paid on a salary, I literally had the latitude and the luxury of doing as many things as I wanted, as many uh, places as I wanted all the time because I wasn't paid for time. So I would jump around and be doing multiple activities 
fortunately, in multiple industries. And after about 10 different industry experiences, I realized, wow, people in this industry don't have a clue how people in this industry or that industry or that industry think or act. They don't have the same mindset strategies, business models, uh, value creations. They don't go after the market the same way. They don't use the same access vehicles. They don't, they don't have any of the same anything, but not because one is necessarily the best. It's just that most people follow the herd. And I was able very simplistically and very accidentally, but fortuitously to borrow many success processes from a number of the industries I'd been in, just basically the one-eyed man in the land of the blind and apply it to industries where everybody was doing pretty much the same thing the same way. And everybody I helped exploded, and that was the start. And I didn't even understand the power of what I had accidentally uncovered. And then as I realized it, I started taking it very seriously and making it a discipline where I just would hopelessly and unrelentingly uh, force myself to explore and examine as many different industries and belief systems and and facets of, of humanity so that I would have this integrated understanding, but it didn't happen quite that fast, but that's the origin. That's so fascinating. I didn't realize that we actually kind of had something in common there because I actually, I, I'm the daughter of a, a Chinese doctor, a German nurse. I got so, you know, like I always say, I have no fun genes whatsoever. <laughs> uh, so, like, so I got, I, I graduated second in my class from high school and then I got married at 19 the first time, dropped out of college, had two, I had three kids by the time I was 22. Okay. Dropped out of college, then got divorced, finished college, finished law school and got remarried and had a fourth child. And okay. like, you know, so we've kind of, you know, we have some similarities, I think, in that regard. I don't, by the way, I don't recommend young marriage. No, I don't either. It's definitely the hard way, but you went on to have seven kids, I heard. And so not by the same wife. I have seven children, three families. They're wonderful, all grown all over the world. And uh, the best thing I can say is they're quality human beings who uh, have great character and great great respect for their fellow uh, human being and, and their uh, people who contribute and add value societally. And that makes me very happy. Yeah. So good, good job, dad. Hats off to you on that. Yeah. So, okay. So um, you, you had, you, you got married young and, and you went on to create all of these incredible businesses. Um, but one of the things that I, I want to start with, because I think it always has to start here with any negotiation, with any business, with anything that you're doing. Um, you know, I always used to say 80% of a negotiation was uh, a, a mindset, right? And then when I interviewed Bob Proctor, he he corrected me and he said, no, 99%. And, <laughs> and so... So now I say that, but you know, I've, I've listened to a lot of you over the last couple of days and getting pre prepared. And I know that you agree with that. And I want to start there. And how would you start with that? I mean, where would you go with that when you're, if you were uh, advising somebody, 
where, what would you say? Well, I'd say the key to everything is really how you see life. And, and if you understand life at a deeper, more connective level than anyone else, uh, not, not manipulatively, but you have what you want, which is advantage. You have, you have, uh, appreciation advantage, empathy advantage, uh, critical thinking advantage, but you can't do it without really understanding the drivers of your mindset. The mindset is driven by beliefs. It's driven by, you know, it's ideology, it's philosophy, it's values, it's ethos, it's your sense of of equity and, and uh, morality. And, and if you really don't know what, I mean, I, I'll come let me interrupt because I'm, I'm a, a poster boy for adult ADD. So I believe if you can't answer these questions, you're, uh, you're stuck or relegated to a life of, of, let's call it not mediocrity, but suboptimal life. You got to know what do you stand for? Who do you stand for? Why do you stand for it? What does standing for it mean? And how is standing for it supposed to be expressed by you and all the interactions you have in your personal life, in your business, career, everything, you know, love, romance, parenting, everything. Yeah, you even have something else though. And this is where I want to I want to drill deeper. You have this belief system that every human being was born with a desire to be great. Yes. And, but only two to 3% get to be great. Can you talk more about that? Sure. I've done a lot of work on variations of that theme. And, and many years ago, I got really fixated because I saw all these people living a life of, you know, the quiet desperation, mediocrity, underperforming, uh, unhappy, suboptimal. Uh, and, and I thought nobody can possibly want to be basically mediocre. They can't. Then I started thinking nobody really does, but they don't know how. And I thought everybody is brought into this world other than people, maybe with a birth defect, mental impairment, something wrong with the desire to be great at everything. A great, you know, a great uh, athlete, a great friend, a great, uh, you know, employee, business entrepreneur, uh, lover, husband, uh, parent. And yet most people don't even come close. And I thought, well, why could that be? And then I started searching for clarified, simplified, very, very bottom line, no nonsense, lowest common denominator answers. And I got them. So I felt there were three or four reasons and I'll share them real quick because they will help everybody. The first is they don't understand that I'll give you an integration. I think every human being is the equivalent of a human hedge fund. If you know what a hedge fund is, a hedge fund for people that don't, it's an investment vehicle that has a portfolio of investment classes that they basically assemble with their capital for the purpose of outperforming the market. And they're trying to outperform the market and hit what they call um, uh, alpha, alpha is performance well above, and they're trying to do it asymmetric, meaning much more upside, much more low, lower, much smaller, lower downside. And I think a life is that way. And I'm going to tie this to, to greatness because in our life, our life is basically a hedge fund of sorts. And it's made up of lots of different components. You know, how we use our time, our happiness, our, you know, our, our, 
energy, our purpose, our, you know, our, uh, our financial accomplishments, all these things. But I don't think anybody starts by quest identifying and then questioning how much am I allocating to this part of my portfolio? What kind of risk am I taking? What kind of yield am I getting? You know, they might have one part of their life that's invested 40 percent and yet they're they're You know, the risk is enormously high and the yield is enormously low. And another part of their life may be inordinately underinvested only 10 percent. And the risk is very low and the yield is so high, but it's out of sync. And if they're trying to get alpha in any of these or all these, they don't even know what alpha looks like. And now take that to greatness. So it's an overlay. So I don't think anyone wants to be anything but great, but they don't have a clue all the areas of a life where greatness can exist. Greatness in their career, greatness in their business, greatness in their relationships, greatness in their in their uh, financial, maybe not wealth, but security, greatness in the joy and 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 the and the and the fulfillment they get out of being alive, out of interacting, greatness in learning, discovery, growth, development, greatness in interacting. So the first thing you have to do is identify the most important categories in your life that you could and should consider becoming great at. And then most people never even come close because they don't know what greatness is supposed to look like, feel like, uh, express like, be validated like in any of these categories. So you need to find some referential examples in your life or in observation that demonstrate that kind of greatness in that kind of an area of your life. And you have to understand, well, what are they doing? What are they saying? How are they doing it? What, what, what can I observe? What can I learn? Can I ask them what's driving them? What was their stimulus? What are they thinking about? What, is, what are they doing? Can I chronicle it? And once you get a clarity of what it's supposed to look like, then you got to evaluate where, where, where you want it to be in that category versus where you are. And there's normally a big gap. And if you take the time to, to go through every one of these categories, you're going to find gaps that are going to vary in different ones. And then you've got to decide what I call the log jam. There's going to usually be one of them that's going to be more critical for everything than the others. And if, you know, if your personal life is a, a, a mess, your, your business life can't possibly be good. It just can't. So you got to figure which one you got to pull the log out of so everything else will flow. And once you do that, what the next and the next is. So now you know what it's supposed to look like. You know where you are in the gap area. So now you got to figure out what is the strategy, the path, the safest, most results, certain way I can get using from where you are to where you want to be in that category. And if you don't have optionality, if you don't have an idea of what the options are available, you will usually choose the hardest and the most uh, low success probable. You'll try to do it all in one fell swoop, like somebody trying to become an Olympic pole vaulter overnight and you'll fail miserable. So you want to actually find the safest. I'm thinking of switchbacks and how you'd go up a mountain. So now you figure out, first of all, what the categories of greatness you want to really excel at. Then you figure out what greatness is supposed to look like in all those categories based on you studying other people who who manifest those kind of greatness ideals, conduct, uh, you know, natural 
uh, order of, of, of being, then you've got to decide what it takes to get or where you are in the gap, then which one of these gaps is the most critical one to, to attend to first, second, third, et cetera. Then you know the gap, you know what it's supposed to look like, you figure out what's the greatest path to get there safely, rapidly, but safely is more important because every day if you're making progress, the compound effect is quite profound, particularly if you're working on eight or so areas of your of your being, of your life. But finally, the key to it is it's very similar. You talk about your four children. I have seven children. If you think about it, most people either have a child, no people that have a child, a little kid trying to learn how to walk, talk, poop, eat, ride a bike. They're terrible when they first do it. They fall over. They miss the toilet. They miss their mouth. They literally babble and make no sense. They need someone to believe in them. They need an advocate, a champion who is, is unrelenting in their, in their support of them. And that can be a significant other. That can be a mentor. That can be a coach. That can be a good friend. But you need someone to hold you to the standards that you were brought into this earth to um, to um, you know to embrace and to and to live up to. I don't know if that helps, but that's sort of a summary of it. No, I think that's great. And one of the other things that you say, which I thought was really, really interesting, is that you def- differentiate between a coach and a mentor which I thought was really, really cool. Talk about that for a second. Yeah, and I don't want to demean or put anybody down who's a coach. It serves a very wonderful um, purpose, but I believe that that, that the difference between a coach and a true mentor in the way I define it is night and day. A coach sits down with you figuratively and will say, tell me what you want to accomplish. And then they agree together on that goal, that outcome, that 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 uh, achievement, and then they help you reverse engineer what has to happen to accomplish it. And on a progressive basis, they hold you accountable. They help you, you know, get back up when you fall down. They course correct. And 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 with if you choose a wise one, a good one, a competent one, and you're really true to yourself, you will achieve that goal. A mentor, on the other hand, by the way, coaches very rarely have done a lot. They mostly do coaching. Nothing wrong with that. A mentor is typically someone who's done a lot of things, really done it, been on the front lines of whatever it is, capitalism, weight loss, you know, marital you know, disruption. They've done it in a way where they really understand what I will call possibilities. So you might say, Jay, I want to take my million dollar business to five million. And I'm only 30 and I want to own it for the next uh 25 years. And I would say, I won't let you limit yourself to that meager of an accomplishment. A mentor knows how much more is possible from time, opportunity, effort, possibility, market, capital, human capital, intellectual capital, uh, energy, you know, the, the tools. And he or she, because they've been there, done that, seen possibilities will not allow you to set standards below you. Uh, A very important quote, and this happens to be a Bob Proctor quote, so I will uh, acknowledge it at where it's due. And he said something that I've always remembered and shared very, very frequently. He said, most people 
silently struggle with the wrong non-verbalized question, the question that they verbalize, or excuse me, that they don't verbalize, but they are tormented by is, am I worthy of this goal? Can I really, you know, uh, take my career to, you know, to greater success? Can I make the money that I want? Can I, you know, meet the right person, have a wonderful relationship, achieve the life experiences I want, uh, you know, get my body to look like an Adonis or a model or whatever. He said, when you realize how much more, more is the operative word is possible from time, effort, opportunity, uh, you know, all these factors, the right question is not, am I worthy of this goal? It's the opposite. Is this limited goal worthy of me? Because most people are capable of so much more. And that's been sort of the denominator of my life, my work, my achievements is I've been blessed to be, um, to be affected positively, to be impacted positively, to be, uh, to be mentored positively by people who experience the much higher uh, stratas of achievement, impact, uh, uh, success, fulfillment, uh, contribution. And when you see those possibilities, you tend to not let people limit themselves. Mm, I love all of that. It's so good. So many, so many pearls in what you're talking about. I do want to take the time for the people who listen to me, for the people who follow me, who are out there going, well, this sounds great, but you know, what does this have to do with me? Who, you know, if I'm here, I'm trying to negotiate with a toxic personality. Maybe I have a, a difficult business partner or I have a difficult, you know, I'm going through a difficult divorce or whatever it is. And, you know, I'm sure in your travails as you've gone along and you've had to negotiate your way through uh, many different situations that you've come across a difficult personality or two along the way. You know, before we jumped on the air today, I said, you know, the reason why you have been so phenomenally successful is that you really understand people. I mean, that that's your business. You understand people. That that's why you, you know, marketing is is the deep understanding of people. So for those people who are, you know, maybe negotiating with somebody who's really toxic, tell a story or, you know, where would the, you start when you were dealing with a difficult or toxic personality? Well, if you will allow me to answer a different question first. It's, it's okay, what is the basis of what you very, very uh, accurately depicted my understanding of of, of humanity. And I would say it was a number of things. First, in the course of my body of work and my, and my uh, consulting work, I've had to, I, I've not had to, I've chosen to help about 300 prominent experts, the Stephen Coveys of the world, the Stephen M. R. Coveys of the world, the Brian Tracy's, Tony Robbins, uh, all kinds of people who were specialists at the highest the highest pinnacle of what they were were uh, experts at. And none of them came to me for help with their expertise. They came for help to command greater respect, greater value, greater price, greater concreteness to the intangibles of their of the skill sets they had mastered. But I had to learn 
all of a short course from each one of them on what the heck it was all about. So I got this massive understanding and it made an impact. That's the first thing. The second thing is I've had some wonderful life experiences. One of them uh, was a, uh, a very famous Hall of Fame athlete, entrepreneur who had a setback and I met him right afterwards. And he went from being an arrogant, self-consumed dick to being a really compassionate and contributing human being. And he, he had a philosophy that I loved. He said, anytime any two people come together for any reason, your responsibility is to make the other person better off even if you're in their life for a few minutes and even if they don't seem they want it, whether you smile, whether you listen, whether you just, you know, you're there. And, and that started. Then I, I got, I did a lot of stuff with Stephen R. Covey, the one who had uh, the seven habits of highly effective people. And he had a belief system that I'll paraphrase. It doesn't do it justice, but your, your goal in life, your purpose in life, your responsibility in life is to first try to examine, evaluate, understand, uh, appreciate, respect, and acknowledge how the other side sees life. Doesn't mean you agree, but that's their reality. So you can't really move to consensus, collaboration, victory, if you're, at, if, if you're having two realities going on, right? Mm -hmm. So I learned, and Stephen Covey said also, seek, you know, seek, to hear before being heard. And I think that's a big advantage. The next is that I had a bunch of clients that were fascinating. One of them, you're an attorney. One of them was a, a famous criminal attorney. I said, how in the world can you possibly represent rapists and murderers and all these horrific and, and, and heinous criminals. And he goes, I can only do it if I can first find at least one thing that I can admire about them. Maybe they were a great son. Maybe they were great at church. Maybe even though they went on the dark side, they were a boy scout. And I'm just putting all these threads together. So that's the next thing. The next is I love human beings. And I believe that every human being is no BS. It's not vainglorious or, or, me trying to seem like I'm better than anyone. I believe every human being with little exception deserves to be treated with, with relevancy, dignity, significance, irrespective of their circumstance or stature. So I come into everything feeling that everybody is interesting, everybody is valuable, everyone has hopes, dreams. Uh, on a micro or a macro, everyone's got you know the same thing. You know, I used to travel all the time to China and Vietnam and I'd go to uh, Malaysia and, and Bali and I'd go all over the world and everybody wants the same thing. They want better lives first for their children then for themselves. They want more happiness and then they want things. But I just, I think that also, you know, you'll never, I, this is, and I don't know if I can, these are all things I've learned from others. It's not original to me. I'm a synthesis of, far brighter people above my intellectual compassion, uh, insight, uh, humanity, humanitarian, and not it's, it's that noble. I mean, you can't, you can't command uh, uh, success leadership and be ethically victorious if you don't understand the human condition and respect it for what it is and not try to fight it for what it isn't, if that makes sense, you know that. 
Coming up, more on Negotiate Your Best Life with Rebecca Zung. And I think, honestly, you can find something to acknowledge them on. And it doesn't have to be uh, inauthentic. But I think a lot of people need to, I mean, they need to win. And winning is usually losing in that kind of a scenario. They got, I'm going to one-up them. I'm going to show them. I'm going to respond in a reactive, in a in a vitriolic manner. And that doesn't work with that kind of a situation. It actually is, it, it just intensifies and fuels the, you know, the negativity and the flames just erupt. When it comes to the safety of a child in a divorce case involving alcohol abuse, there is no compromise. Take back power, strength, and truth from the narcissist in your life with documented proof of sobriety. Soberlink's alcohol monitoring system is the most convenient, reliable, and reasonable way for a parent to provide evidence that they're not drinking when a child's safety is at risk. Soberlink's real-time alerts make it easy to negotiate with any party. Judges rest assured that the child is safe. Attorneys get court admissible evidence of sobriety and both parents have empowerment and peace of mind. I created this community to provide support for divorced moms like me, which is why I partnered with Soberlink to create the resource Tips for Negotiating with a Narcissist. To download the guide and get $50 off your Soberlink device, visit www.soberlink.com forward slash negotiate. Are you struggling with how to negotiate and win? Maybe you're dealing with a personality that's particularly challenging, like a narcissist or other high-conflict personality, and you're feeling powerless. Make sure to download my free Win My Negotiation Cheat Sheet at www.winmynegotiation.com. Take a listen to our archive, where you can listen to more episodes that show you the path to how to negotiate your best life. Yeah, we just want to make sure that they haven't fallen off, I guess, the wagon for uh, lack of a better term. But anyone that relapses, you know, quickly our device would um, register a positive and then there could be intervention that's part of this parenting plan. You know, we do see a lot of positive events um, in, in our business. And um, I always encourage all the attorneys to have some type of contingency if there is a positive, because it's going to come up. And we need to make sure that there's things in place that, um, you know, the parents can act appropriately to, you know, make sure the child's safe, but also to not, what I like to say, not weaponize the disease so that um, that other parent can still have time with that child. And now we return to today's show. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, I mean, I think also, you know, at at their core, they want to feel seen, heard, and know that they matter. I mean, I think all human beings want to feel seen, heard, and know that they matter. I mean, that's why I called my book Negotiate Like You Matter, because I feel I like... It. 
you, you know, and, and you, so, I mean, you do talk about that too, that, you know, really at the core people, you, you're the greatest skill that people can possess is listening. Yeah. And, and, and you talk true. about that too. Yeah. And listening is one of the, 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 the most little possessed skills. And if you get to that point, listening, you don't, most people don't have uh, the capacity to demonstrate that they heard what was said. Because we're all so eager, we're all queuing up, waiting for an interruption in the discussion to, you know, to command uh, control of the discussion instead of letting it be this wonderful inter interaction between two people to get to an outcome. And it's always any discussion is really it's a collaboration, whether you're fighting somebody or whether you're love each other, you're collaborating to get to some outcome, aren't you? Yeah. I mean, but, you know, one of the things that I talk about in negotiating is what I, the concept of what I call narcissistic bartering and people, you know, they don't love to hear it, but I say that one of the strategies is basically what I call narcissistic fluffing, which is fluffing up. I love the analogy. What is it? It's fluffing up the narcissist ego to get it some giving something which is what they want, which is to fluff up their ego in order to get something that you want. And, you know, because they want and crave adulation. So it's to say, hey, you know, you are really great at QuickBooks or something, you know, like that. You're so much better at it than I am. So, you know, how about you do this? You know, something like that. So it's to get them to do something that you want them to do. And therefore you end up getting something out of the deal. And and then, you know, so. And I think honestly, you can find something to acknowledge them on. And it doesn't have to be uh, inauthentic, but I think a lot of people need to, I mean, they need to win and winning is usually losing in that kind of a scenario. They got, I'm going to one up them. I'm going to show them. I'm going to respond in a reactive and a, in a vitriolic manner. And that doesn't work with that kind of a situation. It actually is. It, it just intensifies and fuels the, you know, the negativity and the flames just erupt. Right. So, I mean, I think if you're dealing with a personality type where you know that they want to have their ego stroked more, stroke the ego, right? I mean, what? then you get something out of it that you want. So what? And, And I think that, yeah, I don't think that that is incorrect. And that's not to say that I think it, it isn't. I think that basically if you think about life's interaction, negotiation, which, I mean, it, the truth of the matter is all of life is a negotiation, isn't it really? Absolutely. I mean, I, I say that sometimes the first negotiation you do is with your own mind for your own self-worth sometimes when you're getting out of the bed. Every day. <laughs> and that's very, no, it's very insightful. You're negotiating every minute either explicit, implicit, external, or internal. You're exactly right. And sometimes you're negotiating with your own narcissist and you don't know it if you think about it. 
Yeah. I mean, but one of the things that I heard you say that I thought was really, really insightful was you talk about this concept of if you want to, you know, if you want to, to be interesting, you have to be interested. You want me to expand? Yes, I do. If I tell the the foundation of that realization, it'll probably make uh, for a better story. It'll be rather than just an answer that has no context to it. So uh, when I was younger, I used to travel all around the world all the time and do very, very significant seminars. There was a time without being arrogant that I was the highest paid and the most successful business entrepreneurial business seminar uh, leader, head, whatever you want to call it. Uh, in the world. And we were traveling all over and doing sold out. I used to go to Sydney, Australia and Melbourne, Australia and China. We'd go three or four places. And I was in Sydney one time. We're doing about, this was five or $10 million of seminars in a a three-day period, which was a lot. This was many years ago. And I'd flown in with my family who I always took with me. And it was a very uh, long flight because we had to change uh, planes in Hawaii and it was really interesting. We get into our, our hotel. It was in the middle of Sydney. Everyone went to bed but me. I couldn't sleep. I went to the concierge room at the top of a 40, 50-story building. Beautiful view of Sydney Harbor. And I'm walking in. There's one man there, the only person there. And he's having a drink. And I, uh, I have a, a tendency to want to interact with people. I find that just really therapeutically and fascinating. And I grow from it and it's an interaction sort of a, uh, it's mental, uh, you know, mental, uh, uh, sort of an exercise. So I go up to the man and I told him two things about myself, uh, before I told him this, just so you know it, I was, I was conducting four different seminars it, all over Australia, one was 25,000, three were five. And this is when the normal seminar was $500 and they were all sold out. So I'm saying it just to put a context, I had people that couldn't get in. So it was very, very popular. And I was there to do that. But I told the man only two things. I was from the United States and I was there on business. That's all I told him. The rest of the hour and a half we spoke, I just asked him questions. And I very naturally learned how to do Socratic interviewing, asking him questions and building on them because I was genuinely trying to understand him and trying to project what he was saying. So I asked him, first of all, what he did. Turns out he was from Germany. He worked for the largest pharmaceutical company. He traveled around the world calling on third world health ministers, selling population control systems. I found that to be really amazing. So I asked him how you get an appointment with a third world health minister, what, you, what you're selling, what a population control system entailed, uh, you know, what the population thought about being controlled. Uh, I asked him very frankly, are you selling it above board under the table? And he answered me. Uh, I then asked him, <clears throat> 
uh, what he was doing in Sydney. It turned out, which I didn't pay attention, there were all these guards there. At the same hotel was the World Conference for Health Ministers, not just Third World. And he was an iconic soul that knew everybody. He had his Rolodex, had more uh, key health ministers from every country, and he was a key speaker. That was fascinating. Then I switched and I wanted to know what life was like in Germany, lifestyle, cost of living, housing, education, you know, retirement, uh, you know, religion, uh, even topography, because I'd never really paid attention. And I asked him also about, sorry for the noise, my my family just came home and I'm down in, in the wine room. Then I asked him about what he was going to do when he retired and grew up. He's got this great Rolodex and he answered me. And it was fascinating. And I, at that time, used to love drinking Curvassiers. And I was drinking them obsessively and talking because I found him really his answers stimulated me and I was starting to get very tipsy. So I didn't want to pass out. So I stood up and I excused myself and I started walking towards the elevator and he stopped me and he said, I've got to tell you, you are absolutely one of the most interesting people I have ever met. Swear to God. And I told him nothing about myself. I mean, we pieces of minutia that made no, no relevancy whatsoever. But I made uh, intentionally, but also sincerely, him all important. And I, I remember, and this is going to sound a little funny, leaning against the outer uh, the outer sort of frame of the elevator, praying that the, when it opened, there was a floor there and I wasn't going to fall out because I was starting to wobble, thinking, wow. I just learned if you want to be interesting, all you have to do is be interested. Then I evolved it. And that means if you want to be trusted, maybe all you have to do is trust. Maybe if you want to be loved, all you have to do is love. Then everything is probably the mirror image. And that was the foundation of that. And it has expanded dramatically. And I'm just naturally curious, but it is the it is the font of enormous significance in your in the eyes of other people. And the more you understand how to connect dots when you talk to people, and the more you understand how to project yourself into the life they are describing or the events they are describing, and you try to really envision them, the more connected you are and the more enjoyable the dialogue as well. But there's a protracted answer. Mm. So, so fascinating. So you, you've, you've traveled all over the world. You've met people of all different strata. I mean, what, what is the one thing that you can say for sure that is this, the same about all people? Uh, you know, fundamentally, all people want, you know, they want better lives, for their families or themselves, and they don't always know how to get them. And it doesn't matter whether you're communist, socialist, Buddhist, you know, you know, I've been, I literally have been around the world 81 times and I have never, ever been anything but impressed with the people that I uh, interacted with. I mean, I'll tell you a true story and I do this and it's benevolently selfish. When I used to go to China and I used to go to a lot of the Asian countries, you said you have an Asian uh, uh, parental background. The Asia, there are two things that I learned. First of all, it, it, emotionally, a lot of people in various Asian countries don't evoke a lot of emotion. 
And when I went, I used to go there. I always would go first class on a nice airline and I would drink like a fish when I was younger. So the first day I was there, I always went early. The first day I was there, I would sleep for 15 hours and hydrate because I had a terrible hangover, but it was great wine and, 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 um, and alcohol. The next day I would sit in the lobby for four hours, smiling at everybody who had no emotion until they smiled back. Then I would get in the elevator and I would stand literally at the door looking in at everybody. And most people tend to look down and I would look at them till they smile. Then I would get off on all the floors and just walk the floors and smile at the housekeepers and the servers. And you could tell their body language would change because they were acknowledged and they really inherently wanted to smile. They just really needed some help prying it out of them. And I felt like a trillion dollars, but I don't think a lot of people connect. I mean, and you're talking about, uh, I mean, and I was going to say, I've, I've had to negotiate with sociopaths, I've had to negotiate with totally seemingly irrational people, but their irrationality was built on some kind of logic they had. So the more you try to understand and grasp what's going on in that reality, it's fascinating and it gives you a different kind of power. But I think people tend to they tend to interact with people much more superficially than they know. Yeah, and you've talked in in some of your other interviews too about taking the time to understand what's going on in that reality too. Yeah, oh, I mean it's it, it everybody I mean there's method to everybody's madness. There really is unless they are literally uh, you literally, you know, mentally deranged, and, and, but that's not the majority of people. There's some driver of of subjective logic to what everybody does, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, whether you agree with it or not, I mean, obviously, most of the time, maybe you don't if they're, you know, <laughs> narcissistic or sociopathic, whatever. But they have their reasons. Yeah, and and. and and try to understand or think, if you can't understand, thinking, well, something occurred at some time in their life or life experiences to cause them to, you know, to get what I might feel is illogical, irrational, you know, lopsidedly subjective, but they don't feel that way. So, what is it? Why is it? And what is it that I can do to bring equanimity to that situation? You have to understand what's motivating them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have you, to understand what's motivating it, them. It prevail may not be the answer, but you'll never be. You'll, you'll never, never have a resolution. You won't, be, you won't get an outcome that you want. You'll never have a resolution. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So... What thought would you want everybody to leave with? Jeez, I think that uh, if if people are, are are following you because they want to be powerful negotiators in inclement types of environments, I would say that that I was very impacted when I uh, interviewed originally Stephen. Mr. Covey, you know who he is. I I've followed, you know, I Stephen Covey. I'm not sure that I understand that there's a difference between yeah. the two. Stephen R. Covey wrote the book 
uh, the, the seven habits of highly effective people. His son, who's younger than I, but maybe 10 years, is the world authority on business trust building. He's broken it down to analytics, and then he's quantified that if you can master these 13 traits, character uh, factors, drivers, that your result, your performance, your economic, your, your, your psychic uh, wealth will increase at least 300%. And I would tell everybody in your life, you're negotiating all the time. The more trustworthy you are, the more authentic you are, that starts you on a powerful place. Because now you've got, again, I'm break, I break business down to clinical terms, not, not uh, and I'm very moral, but you want advantage in everything you do. You don't want disadvantage, do you? I talk about ethically manipulating the manipulator. Yeah. So that's what people hear me say all the time. What are the factors that are going to, I mean, I look at all of the interactions in life, business, uh, selling, you know, love, parenting, all that. It's like the scales of justice, which you can relate to. And you want to put all the weights in the beginning. And then as you go through it that way on your side, so that you're going to be victorious. Uh, you're not you're going to be a vic victor, not a victim because you have control. I don't think people realize we have always had, we have total control. You just have to understand that almost everything you engage in has factors, forces, you know, causes and effect. And when you understand what they are and how to either nullify, uh, control them, uh, you know, uh, redirect them, you have power and advantage. Absolutely. A hundred percent. I love that. Love that. Love that. Okay. Where can people learn more about you? Uh, I mean, if they, we have a website, abraham.com and it gives away tons of things. I don't even think we asked for a mandatory opt-in. It's pretty cool. It's got 800 or so items on it, but yeah, you can go there. I mean, I, I, uh, we get a lot of things benevolently because the stuff I do is pretty high end and expensive. And, you know, we got a couple of, ex of unexpensive or inexpensive stuff they can go to, but I think they can, you know, we give away three, four full length books that don't sell anything and courses and we give away. And my, you know, most of my interviews are very eclectic. They can just listen to them at, at the ultimate entrepreneur. There's two or 300 of them. And some of them are very interesting and none of them are, are uh, self-serving and none of them sell anything. So it, it's fine, but hopefully I added some value today. Absolutely. And we'll have a link to your, your books and all kinds of stuff. So go check him out, follow him. I mean, a wealth of information. What an honor to have you and definitely go follow him. Thank you so oh, you're, much. You're, you're a superstar. I'm flattered to have the opportunity to spend time with you and, and to reach more people. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for stopping by and listening to this episode of Negotiate Your Best Life. I'm Rebecca Zung. Check back next Monday for more inspirational pearls of wisdom. And if you enjoyed today's podcast, I'd love if you would give it a five-star rating and tell me what you liked in a review on iTunes. Also, be sure to grab your winning negotiation cheat sheet at winmynegotiation.com. And remember, today is a perfect day to start negotiating your best life.